this thing in all night drinking wine, spooty ooty drinking wine. Wine, spooty ooty drinking wine. It's time for Wine by Design with Len here on 1510 WMEX. Len is a certified wine educator with over 30 years in the wine industry, and he's a WMEX good guy. Each week, join Len as we discover all of the wine, and it's by design here on WMEX. Here's your host, Len Prasuti. Well, thank you, Ben. And welcome everyone to Wine by Design. Just wanted to remind you, in addition to the phone-in number, the 781-834-9639 number, you can email me your questions at lenwmex at gmail.com or l-e-n-w-m-e-x at gmail.com. And did want to remind you that absolutely all of the past episodes are now available as a podcast at wmexboston.com, or you can search Wine by Design on your favorite platform. As everyone that's been listening to this show knows by now, I'm really interested in wine and health. And I've done a lot of research on the topic, you know, with the medical libraries, attended symposiums, read pretty much everything I could find on the subject. But my hands down favorite wine and health book of all time is Age Gets Better with Wine, New Science for a Healthier, Better, and Longer Life by Dr. Richard Baxter. I've talked about it before on this show. You know, it's unbelievable in that it's a ton of fun to read. And Dr. Baxter has a great sense of humor throughout, uh, all kind of neat historical quotations and references along with that. But the most important part is he has understandable explanations of the scientific studies and what it means to us. He's actually recently written a second book called Wine and Health, Making Sense of the New Science and What It Means for Wine Lovers to kind of update all of his um, information. Well, I am thrilled to tell you that we have Dr. Baxter as our guest for the entire show. Welcome, Dr. Baxter, and good evening. How are you? Hey, th- I'm great. Thank you so much for that uh, really wonderful introduction. Um, it, it was such a pleasure doing the books and, and really a pleasure talking about this. So I appreciate the opportunity. Oh, absolutely. Well, well, let me tell you, it, it's it's sorely needed because it really has been part of our society and all of that. And the, the big game changer, as you know, was that 1991 uh, French Paradox episode that they put on 60 Minutes where they talked about the French eating their diet really rich in fats, you know, foie gras, cheese, and all that. But yet they had a very low incidence of heart disease. And the implications were kind of drawn from that. It's interesting, I was at retail when that happened, and for the very, very first time, I had people coming into the store saying, my doctor has recommended that I start drinking wine moderately. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about those findings and uh, how it helps the heart to be healthy. Yeah, first of all, I, I think we have to have the disclaimer that, you know, if you are somebody who doesn't drink and you have a reason not to be drinking, um, that that's a decision that has to be taken 
with good medical advice and and you know all the other things that go along with that. Uh, and also, I am not a cardiologist. I'm a plastic surgeon, so my interest kind of relates to the anti-aging aspect of it. And that's where the name for the first book came from, uh, in fact, uh, because I, it all sort of came together around this anti-aging topic. Uh, but really, my interest in it really dated to the French paradox story and and the heart health thing. And that data uh, has been pretty well borne out. But really, that wasn't even new data. If you uh, start to look into it a little bit deeper, uh, you'll find um, studies from even the 1970s um, one from the Framingham study, which uh, your listeners in the Boston area will be familiar with. That's that's the big study that taught us pretty much everything we know about uh, heart health uh, going all the way back to the 1950s. Um, and in the 1970s, they decided to kind of look at the role of alcohol and drinking. And they, they put all the data together and they found uh, that there was a benefit to moderate drinking in terms of heart health. And it was a fairly uh, obvious Finding, but they they were not allowed to publish it because there was concerns about the message that uh, that drinking could be healthy, and that wow, was suppressed for a number of years. Wow. Yeah, yeah, and and the uh, one of the authors of the the study, uh, he 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 told this story after he retired when he could sort of talk freely about it, and he wow. he uh, published it in a medical journal and said, you know, we knew this back then, uh, but we're, we weren't allowed to say anything. So it really took the the uh, French paradox story to kind of put it all forward and, and really get it out there. Okay, now what's what's the mechanism there? How does it help um, uh, the actual the heart to stay healthier? I, I understand it's something to do with greasing platelets or something of that sort. Yeah, I think it's a number of things um, in the right amounts. Uh, alcohol itself is a little bit of an anticoagulant. So it, it sort of helps keep the, the blood flowing. Um, it tends to improve the ratio of your cholesterol, the high density, low density cholesterol. Um, in high amounts, it actually uh, promotes hypertension. So that's not a good thing. But those are two of the mechanisms for alcohol itself. And then, you know, you get into the, the antioxidant polyphenols in wine and the resveratrol. And that just has a wide range of things that are beneficial. Um, I think it was a little bit, a little bit of a misdirection when we got excited about resveratrol and all of that because it looked like it could explain so many things, you know. But in the end, it turns out there just isn't enough resveratrol in wine to do that, um, all the things that that we knew it could do, and and it's not very well absorbed as a supplement. So the so the you know these things have a lot to do with it, but they're not the only story either. Yeah, I have to admit, I was fascinated by that. I actually had a chance to meet Dr. Sinclair, who was at the time deeply involved with the study of resveratrol. And it looks like from what he said, he came to the conclusion that it only helped in combination with all the other trace elements and all that was going on in the wine. And that when he isolated it. It didn't seem to have the same effect, which made me feel good because I'm in the wine business. So, well, yeah, I mean the the idea that you could take all the good things in wine and put them in a pill and skip the alcohol uh, didn't really didn't really work out. Yeah, David Sinclair is a very smart guy, and he uh, he used this um, this research he was doing on resveratrol to really kind of open up a whole new, fairly dramatic uh, avenue of research on on anti-aging and longevity, and, and he's still doing really, really interesting work. 
Yeah, there's so much yet to discover, I'm I'm sure there. But one of the things that really struck me in reading your book and in doing my own research was so many of the different things that it seemed to help. Um, you know, it, it helped women maintain bone density. Um, yeah. Oh, my God, you know, Alzheimer's and dementia. Actually, we have a bit of an older audience. Our audience is mainly... 50 plus. And I was wondering if you could speak uh, to a little bit about how it does help with dementia and Alzheimer's and kind of keeps the the mind a little sharper, especially of the elderly there. Uh, Yeah, we know that the pattern is very clear that the incidence of uh, dementia and loss of cognitive ability uh, is really lessened in people who drink wine regularly in moderation. You know exactly why that happens, um, I think, has a, a number of possible explanations. But really, study after study have found it going back for decades now, and it's it's a very clear pattern. Uh, I think one of the aspects to it, as it is with so many of the issues of, of wine and health, is that it's it's really tied to a healthy lifestyle where you are doing other things that are that are good for you. Uh, but certainly wine is always kind of standing out as one of the uh, one of the aspects of, of, you know, maintenance of good cognitive function as you get older. And, um, you know, resveratrol looked like it was going to be an explanation for a while. But really, even just the alcohol itself, it, it tends to uh, sort of uh, clear some of the toxins out of the brain in the right amounts. And to me, that was fascinating because we've just always assumed you know, alcohol is toxic to brain cells and they don't recover, but in the right amounts, it turns out to actually be a positive thing. Yeah, that's that's a, a very interesting point because one of the questions I'm most often asked is what causes the, the next day headache? And my first question to them is how much wine did you drink? <laughs> was it several bottles or was it a glass or two? But I, I know... I. I don't mean to make light of it, and I understand that there are histamines and things like that involved that can cause headaches in people that that are sensitive. But with moderate consumption, especially during the meal, I I think unless you're in that group, um, well, I I know especially in your second book, you've done uh, research on that. What what conclusion have you come to? Well, you, as far as uh, wine with meals, I think they uh, headaches. That, yeah, just the... and headaches. Well, the, yeah. So wine with meals. Let me just touch on that for a second. You know, you do absorb the alcohol more slowly, but um, the, also the polyphenols, the antioxidants in the wine tend to kind of blunt that increase in oxidized fats going into your blood. So they actually make your food healthier uh, as well. Um, wow. So the wine, the wine and headache thing is. Um, you know, there's some recent research out on that. And, um, you know, the, the, uh, I think we're getting closer to understanding it. Uh, this recent study, um, it kind of looked at what happens to not just the alcohol, but to the metabolites of alcohol. And, it, and those are actually what are responsible for most of the toxic effects of alcohol. If you look at it directly, alcohol itself is not really a, a very strong carcinogen or does anything particularly bad. But the first step in its metabolism is to make a molecule called acetaldehyde, which is very toxic. And so that's what causes the hangovers the next day and uh, and just makes you feel terrible. And, you know, in Southeast Asia in particular, there's a genetic 
variant where they they don't make the enzyme um, properly to get through that second step of alcohol metabolism so that that acetaldehyde builds up and that's why they get that uh, intolerance. Uh, so this last study uh, found that one of the uh, polyphenols actually in wine called quercetin inhibits that, that enzyme so that even if you don't have that variant where you don't metabolize it well, you can kind of build up these levels of this toxic uh, metabolite. And so that looked like it still does look like a reasonable explanation for the wine uh, headache thing, but it hasn't really been tested beyond that. Um, even though it's a, a very good hypothesis, it hasn't been tested. Really, I think it, it has a lot also to do with, as you mentioned, the, the histamine-like things, the biogenic amines. Uh, they are more prevalent in red wine, so that would explain why people get a red wine headache more often than a white wine. And um, you know, these are nasty things. They're actually histamine-like things in wine, and they are mostly formed in this secondary fermentation, the malolactic fermentation, uh, so, uh, you know, which is more commonly done in red wines. So I think we're still figuring that aspect of it out. Um, you know, it's a bacterial fermentation, so it's different than how the primary fermentation is done. And um, there was a guy a couple of years ago who developed a kind of bioengineered yeast that would do that secondary uh, fermentation and 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 minimize those but people didn't didn't really take to it because they didn't like the idea of a bioengineered product uh, being used to make their wine so wow, um, anyway there's there's a lot there's a lot to unpack there but um you know we're getting closer to figuring that out yeah i i know what people tend to do and, and i think one of the things that the government did to make this um confusing quite frankly is people think it's the sulfites and right. it, it it is interesting because as you know they use less sulfur in making red wine because you have the the tannins that help act as the antioxidant there and they're using a lot more of it in the white wines but people you know again tend to blame it on that because they don't understand the role of uh, sulfur in wine, sulfites in wine, and the fact that it does keep the wine cleaner and healthier um, than yeah, if you exactly. didn't use them at all. So, And there are plenty of sulfites in other foods that we eat in much higher amounts than what you get in wine. Yeah, that's one of the things I have to admit that always bothered me is, you know, they use it, I guess, in with fish and uh, in baked goods and that and lot higher amounts than they they would in wine but uh they weren't required to to put it on the label exactly yeah so it's not the sulfites but you know um i i really do feel for people who can't drink red wine because of because of the headache issue and i hope we do figure it out for them yeah that would be great if they could take perhaps uh, a, a pill that would allow them to tolerate it uh, a bit better one of the things that I have to admit I was fascinated by, and it does seem that it, I know stress is a killer and that the wine helps you to relax and all that, but there seem to be many other benefits that just don't seem to be as related to that. Um, one of the things, you know, smokers that drink red wine were 60% less likely to develop lung cancer than if you didn't. And uh, it's... It, it's just, again, I just find it incredible that there are so many different things like, you know, helping to prevent macular degeneration. Could it have something to do with 
helping in some way um, the blood to deliver oxygen to your body? Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's that's got to be part of it. But it's really is remarkable, as you point out, just how many different things it does. Um, you know, in in all this research and some of the old wine and health books, I came across something from the 1930s that was uh, from um, France, and it was it was really kind of a puff piece to promote the wine industry. But and you know, it had watercolor illustrations, but it was called uh, uh, "Wine is My Doctor." And he went through chapter by chapter all the things that it was good for. It was good for your kidneys. It was, you know, good for muscle strength. And it was good, made you a more creative writer and it, all these things. And so <laughs> I went through the book and it's like, you know, there's actually scientific evidence to support each of those claims, even though they were uh, kind of fanciful at the time. Wow. That's that's amazing. Yeah. And I have to admit, when I first started looking at this subject, the thing that did occur to me is there is a lot of acidity in wine. So I was uh, thinking, yeah, is it possible that this might cause an ulcer? But then came to find out that it killed the bacteria that did cause ulcers, and it actually helped prevented ulcers from forming. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, that, it, is, that is fascinating. You know, when I was in my general surgery training way back in the day, uh, we didn't know any of that stuff, of course. And so standard advice for somebody with ulcers was don't consume alcohol. But we didn't even know about the bacteria that caused the ulcers and, you know, that the wine would actually be a, a, a good thing. Yeah, it, it's it's just the, again, kind of the overall benefit of it. Um, and, you know, you mentioned this earlier. It It is kind of interesting because a lot of people think, well, you're consuming wine and there's calories in wine. So it, it might make you overweight when, in fact, they found that the opposite is true, that if, if you have moderate amounts that you consume, especially with your meal, it can actually help you to maintain a healthy lifestyle and lose weight at the same time. That is absolutely true. Um, you know, the, the calories in wine are from the alcohol, and alcohol has a whole separate uh, metabolic pathway. So it doesn't give you that kind of bump in your blood sugar levels and do all the bad things as far as insulin resistance and that. It it provides some calories, but it it's actually a much healthier way to get the calories. Yeah. So I, I think, I, again, um, one of the fascinating aspects of all this to me is how it does seem to keep the elderly sharper. Do you think it, it has something to do with um, you know, I've always been told wine's a social lubricant, so to speak, and that it helps interaction with others that that can make you have a more positive outlook. I I've always been been curious about that that specific aspect of it, um, and and how you know it 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 does seem to 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 keep people sharper. Sometimes I think it might just have to do with the relaxation factor. It, you know, because tension kills. And sometimes yeah, I think, you're, you're very tense. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, yeah, you know, those are things that are harder to measure. Um, but certainly it is a social lubricant. And people who are more social and have more robust interactions with their, their friends and their community uh, do tend to be healthier and, and, and live longer. Um, you know, it may also be that wine drinkers are smarter to uh, begin with. 
which is maybe a little bit of a provocative thing to say. But I like um, that. If, but, if, if you're smart, uh, you drink wine. <laughs> um, there was a, you know, Europe has its own sort of Framingham study and it's run out of Copenhagen. And they, they did an interesting study there uh, going over many, many years where they did an IQ test on, on all of the young men of, you know, uh, draft eligibility age. And um, and they also asked them a, a lot of lifestyle questions. And then they went back years later and sort of retested them. And they found a direct correlation between IQ and preference for wine. So wow. um, go figure. Yeah, At least that's in that something. population, the smart people preferred wine. Uh-huh. And, and again, it reduces the possibility of getting a gallstone. I mean, the list just goes on and on. It's in moderate amounts, especially white wine, from my understand, is really healthy for the lungs. Um, it's one of the things that has been mystifying to me is, again, as as you have, you know, I, I spent a, a lot of time looking at this and reading of many of the studies and the information is just so overwhelmingly positive. But it does seem like recently that they are running new studies that seem to conflict with the finding of the old studies. And in many cases, it was a subject that I thought was kind of done to death. And, you know, they really established the fact that, um, yeah, this happens. We've done the study so many times with so many different populations and all that and, and uh, different groups that um, it was okay, we can kind of hang our hat on this. But now I'm reading that a lot of these things are now up for dispute again. And I know that that's something that you address actually to a great extent in your second book. And I was wondering if you might just expound on that, expand on that a little bit. Um, why, what's happening here? Yeah, so there's there is a lot going on there. If you look at the the you know fundamental thing that we've been uh, using to describe this is the what's called the J-shaped curve. So that's where you just plot the average daily uh, alcohol consumption or wine consumption specifically versus your risk of uh, death or disease. And so you just take the zero as the reference line, and as as you add in a drink or two a day, then your risk is lower. So that curve starts to go downward. And then as you drink more, it curves back up and crosses so that somewhere around three to four glasses of wine a day, it's the same as a non-drinker. And then above that, you're starting to drink fairly heavily and the risk goes up steeply. So it makes this J shape. Um, a couple of things have, have, have happened. One is that that is really derived from the, the French paradox itself, which is a very specific way of drinking. It's wine with dinner. It's on a pretty much daily basis. It's pretty much only wine, and it's rarely uh, in excess. And people now are binge drinking more. Um, their their drinking patterns are less tied specifically to uh, meals, um, and they're drinking more varied. You know, even in France, the average per capita wine consumption is only half what it was in the 1960s, but they're not drinking less alcohol. So there's oh. more of this uneven pattern of drinking uh, such that if you just take the overall uh, picture and you just say, let's just you know ignore what people are drinking because that's getting harder to measure and just look at what is the net effect of alcohol, 
then you can come up with a, a, a net negative effect. Uh, but that doesn't mean that applies to the subset of people who still drink wine in a traditional way. And I think those benefits, even, even in the studies themselves, and even not just accounting for wine, if you look at the way they're being uh, represented to you, they're still all J-shaped curves. So the other thing that has happened is people are questioning that zero drinker reference point. They're saying, well, that first part of the curve where the risk goes down is really an illusion because some of the people who don't drink are former drinkers who had to quit for health reasons. And so there you're, you're making them look healthier by comparison uh, when they're really actually sicker people in that group. Uh, but the, the, so the studies that have said, look, if you account for that, then the J-shaped curve goes away. But those tend to be um, reports from institutions that are focusing on drug addiction and alcohol abuse. And so they're picking the studies that will give them a certain result. If you put all of them together, you still find a J-shaped curve. The benefit is still there. Uh, but there's this assumption now that that kind of an original reference point has problems. Um, but I, I, I'm not buying it, and I think they're misrepresenting the, the studies. Wow, that is fascinating. I I had no idea that was the case. I Now that you mention it, that makes a ton of sense because uh, the from what I've experienced and being in the wine business, I know a lot of people that, that drink wine every day, not to excess, but drink it with the meals. As a matter of fact, my my specialty is kind of wine and food matching. So that's, I'm all about that. And, um, and we have wine at the table, but even way back, I ran into people that drank wine, stopped drinking, ate dinner, and then started drinking wine again. And uh, I'm saying to myself, isn't that exactly the wrong idea? Yeah. Wine is a food. It's part of the, part of the meal. That's that's the way I look at it. Yeah, and it, it's it, when you remove that aspect of it, uh, uh, I could see where a lot of the beneficial things can can be questionable. Um, because one of the other things that fascinated me, and I think you mentioned it a, a bit earlier, was how it if you have it with the meal, it helps regulate the release of insulin into your bloodstream, so it can actually you know help you experience uh the whole eating um thing in a in a in a healthier way in that sense and it can actually help prevent type 2 I, uh, diabetes from what i've i've heard yeah. there and it, there there's data there too yeah it just seems that there's there's so much positive that it's i don't know in 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 a sense irresponsible to uh to maybe view it otherwise. Although the thing that I have to admit that is a trend that I find a little bit troubling, and I think this has to do with, and I know you did mention it in your second book. I haven't made it all the way through that, but I am uh, very far into it, is this whole thing of, I, and I think that it comes from wines looking to score a high number mm -hmm. to help sell it. And when you have a, a table of 30 wines in front of you, the ones that rise to the top are the ones that are super concentrated and the ones that are very, very high in alcohol. And I hate that for a couple of reasons, because first of all, they become so cumbersome and powerful 
that they don't work with the food very mm -hmm. well. And I don't want to have a half a glass of wine and have my head spin. Some of these are like 17% natural alcohol. And I, I can see where that enters into the equation. But I, I do think where sommeliers got involved not that long ago and, you know, managed to tell people, hey, you know, they don't have a sense of place when they get ripe. There could be from anywhere. Mm -hmm. You get these chocolatey notes and the wine really has that sense of place and it's true identity when you when you keep the alcohol levels a little a, a little more natural which i view around that 13 13 5 percent but yeah I, it's I, getting harder to find uh wines made that way you know but i i won't buy anything more than like 14 and a half i just you know it's um well, it just doesn't make sense to me yeah i i i couldn't agree with you more I had an experience when I was in the business of selling wine and we were kind of waving the flag at a restaurant where we wanted to spend money and we wanted to, to drink wine. And there were three of us there that were young and, you know, we, we, we could drink a decent amount. We happened to get a bottle of Zinfandel that mm -hmm. was 17.1 natural alcohol. And we each had a glass and that was it. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the body just had such a more, such a, a difficult time trying to metabolize. After you get past a certain point, it's it's got to make it a lot harder for the body to break down the alcohol, I would assume. And that yeah, could just probably- just too much all at once. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, have you found that, well, I mean, I would think naturally that could cause problems there as well in in terms of what you're considering moderate wine consumption and all that and well exactly it changes the definition completely i mean these studies have standard definitions of what moderate consumption is but they're based on historical standards uh and and uh, they don't necessarily apply uh, currently so yeah that's a real problem i think the other thing is we we make wine too sort of um you know special too to um, elitist and yes. uh, you know I, I i wrote a blog thing a while back in praise of ordinary wines you know because that that was that was really the history of this is people had ordinary wine that they would have with dinner it wasn't it wasn't just a special occasion every time you popped open a bottle of wine uh, and i think we kind of need to get back to that a little bit as well at least if we really expect people to kind of have it as a lifestyle thing that's done done on a nightly basis yeah, well, thank God there is a, a very definite movement headed in that direction. Uh, there are wines that it, it's they're they're making them fun, and I think the French call it glug glug or something like that. <laughs> that are wines that are lower in alcohol. I mean, some of them are like eleven percent or or uh, even lower, and they're they're just fun to drink. They're very very easy. They they don't require as much attention but they still work beautifully at the table and um i i couldn't agree with you more i i do think that if people could get into drinking wine um on a daily basis and one of the reasons i'm so into wine and food matching is you don't have to have an expensive wine to have an amazing experience when the wine's working synergistically with the food um exactly 
you know, we, we spend typically at my house and I mean, we're really into wine. We have some great bottles that we pull out of the cellar, but typically day in and day out, we're around that $12, $15 range. You get really good wine in that price range that works beautifully at the table. I agree. I agree completely. Well, I can't tell you um, how much fun this has been, Dr. Baxter. Uh, and again, I would like to recommend your books um, to everyone, both Age Gets Better with Wine, New Science for a Healthier, Better and Longer Life, as well as your new one, The Wine and Health, Making Sense of the New Science and What It Means for Wine Lovers. That one, you know, the first one was fun, but I, I don't know. The, the second one, I'm so glad you wrote that because it's really coming at a critical time for the whole idea of wine as part of a healthy lifestyle and you're helping to unwind all of the things that are going on there but again thank you for um, being our guest for the past half hour you've been listening to wine by design with len on 1510 till next week all the best in wine and life